So over the weekend, there was all kinds of speculation that Boris Johnson had found the former prime minister. You'll remember Boris Johnson had found enough uh, support to try to make a comeback. Just a few months after he resigned in disgrace, he came back from holiday in the Caribbean and figured he would, uh, he had enough support to run again. Well, it turns out he might have. We don't really know. We think he might have. He wouldn't say who it was, but apparently he got over the 100 MP threshold. Uh, but he, he bowed out. He left. He's done. So it became a one-horse race. And in this case, uh, Penny Mordorant also dropped out. Uh, and that one horse is Rishi Sunak. It's a name you might recognize because he finished runner-up to Liz Truss, what, two months ago. <laughs> and we thought, okay, well, that's it. He's done. Uh, nope. Liz Truss is gone. And the 42-year-old Sunak is the last one sp- standing, so to speak. Um, you'd have to ask yourself, who wants the job right now? But Sunak will indeed meet with King Charles on Tuesday morning before taking over as prime minister. Um, Charles will already have had two PMs, which is remarkable. His his mom had, I think, what, 14, 16? Charles will have had two already, and it's only been a month. So Rishi Sunak is the next one. Um, and he called it the greatest privilege of his life to be able to serve the party and said he's humbled and honored to have the support of his parliamentary colleagues. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. Uh, Sunak will uh, become the first of many things. He's the first uh, person of Indian and Hindu heritage to be a, to be prime minister, um, which is in of itself pretty remarkable. Harmeet Singh Gill of the London suburb of Southall says Sunak becoming prime minister is a watershed moment for the country. It's good to see. It's, it's signs of things to come. And it's just a sign of 21st century Britain where it doesn't matter what background you're from now, that you can rise up the ranks to the positions of power. But it does represent a bit of a divide in the party. Um, you see, Liz Truss came from sort of the ideological side. And the reason that she won was that she promised things such as we're going to hike spending and cut taxes that Sunak said just couldn't be done. He said, that's, that's ridiculous. And it was ridiculous. That's why Liz Truss is gone. Um, but it does represent this divide we're seeing in conservatism these days between these sort of populist promise everything, a little loose on the facts, a little liberal with the truth, make the evidence fit, you know, fit your argument, not the other way around, versus the sort of old school, small C conservatives, go slow, uh, small government, tax cuts, and so forth. Sunak very much representing the latter, not the former. Trust very much the former, not the latter. So with more on this and how it applies to not only Britain, but right around the world, including here at home. Joining me now is David Mosscrop. He's a columnist for the Washington Post. He's a political commentator, author of Too Dumb for Democracy, and you can find him on Substack now under David Mosscrop. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So much going on uh, in this fascinating space that is uh, democracy and and leadership change. But we can start in Britain. Uh, Britain has a new prime, will have a new prime minister soon. Tomorrow, we believe, Rishi Sunak will be sworn in. Um, It has been such an incredible few weeks there. What do you make of it? I mean, really, there's this whole notion that, you know, ideology bumped into reality and reality won. And that's sort of been the takeaway of all this, that these this ridiculous, you know, boosting spending and cutting taxes just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And, and, I, and it's fascinating because that's sort of always the case that people have ideas and they have preferences and they have priorities and then events happen and they run smack dab into reality and they have to 
uh, adjust. And sometimes you've got the time to adjust. Sometimes you don't. Liz Truss obviously didn't. Um, you know, in, in her defense, I haven't seen a lot of people coming to her defense, but in her defense, it's very possible that nothing she would have done would have made a difference because uh, there was a, a real tension between the parliamentary caucus of the Tory party and the membership of the party, which speaks to the sort of institutional arrangements of the British Tories and how they choose their leader. Uh, so she was probably in tough from, from the moment she won. Um, but, you know, then we come back to Rishi Sunak and, and, well, what are you going to do? Because it's not enough now to say you're going to take the old Tory approach of, of lower taxes, smaller government, that's been rejected and it's not going to fit the moment. So, you know, can he adapt and adjust and provide a better program? Meanwhile, there are, you know, dozens of points behind the, the Labour Party. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting here is that in that battle between the membership and the caucus, uh, Sunak is the caucus choice and uh, mm-hmm. and they didn't have to go to the membership a second time, uh, which will no doubt uh, be a relief to the caucus. But there's a real divide that's gone on now and we've seen it elsewhere as well between sort of sort of the the populist side of things, the conservative side of things, and you're seeing it playing out here, I gather. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, there's all kinds of different ways to, to classify and sort conservatism. Uh, at the moment, we're seeing a kind of old school Toryism, uh, which is respectful of institutions, very cautious about change, very cautious about proceeding um, to, to remake institutions run of the mill. They want smaller government, but they do think there's a role for government. They want a more business friendly environment, but they're a little bit weary of, of giants coming in and, and stomping in everyone else. And then there's a kind of libertarian conservatism, which is just straight up lower taxes, less government and the Thatcher mold. And then there's a kind of burn it all down populist authoritarian conservatism that you see with, for instance, Donald Trump. And, and you see a little bit of that here in Canada. It was particularly notable with the, the convoy that occupied Ottawa last uh, winter and early spring. And that's a kind of you know middle finger to every institution, every establishment, every career politician, so on and so forth. And those factions are all battling it out in civil society and within conservative parties and in conservative caucuses for that matter. And it's made for a, a tumultuous time for conservatism and for the countries in which it operates. Yeah, because there are lessons here. I mean, you're right. Uh, in Liz Truss's case, the deck may have already been stacked against mm-hmm. her. There were perhaps very little she could have done other than not, you know, the mini budget, the chancellor's comments about the pound, about more tax cuts to come. I mean, they sabotage themselves in many ways. Mm-hmm. But there have to be lessons for what happened to Liz Truss for other politicians out there who are making similar promises, which is, you know, sort of simple solutions to very complex problems and markets sort of ever shaky markets watching on to see exactly if the people in charge know what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. And it's a reminder that at some point people stop buying your bull, right? And, and you know, it reminds me a little bit of 2015 federally when the new Democrats looked at the the electoral landscape and said, we're going to run a campaign that says no, no deficits. We want to be seen as fiscally responsible. And Thomas Mulcair decided, okay, we're going to say no to deficits. And Justin Trudeau, who, you know, was sort of then the, the great hope of the liberal party came out and said, well, we're going to run deficits um, because we need to stimulate the economy. And the more we grow the economy, the more revenue we generate and the more we can pay down the debt and the debt close the deficit. And that resonated with people who were just kind of sick of the fear-mongering around uh, deficits. And it, it looks a bit like that now, where people want solutions. They're having a very hard time you know, paying bills. Grocery bills are absolutely absurd. 
fuel, absolutely certain, particularly in the United Kingdom, heating your home next to impossible with winter coming. And so they're not going to buy this idea of, well, tax cuts for the rich is going to trickle down to everyone else and you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not working. And so now they want different sorts of solutions. And I suspect to a, a significant amount of them are going to expect that to be status solutions. Now, the state is going to have to do that because they just don't trust the market to do it. And I, you know, they might be onto something there. Yeah, and it's going to be, um, I mean, people will be watching to see what happens in the UK. It's become a bit of a petri dish for mm. for for what happens when an otherwise well-respected economy, generally seen as being, you know, it's not Italy, um, <laughs> sort of wanders into some very dangerous economic territory and just how volatile everything is right now. I mean, I think that was probably the biggest shock for me is just how quickly the market said, wait a second, I, we don't care if this is the United Kingdom, like this isn't going to work. Um, and we're going to, you know, there's it's fire sale time. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lesson there too, though, that, that people ought to be wary about across the political spectrum. And that's, um, you know, what it was the market that seems to have defeated Liz Truss. First and foremost, not the you know Tory caucus, not the Tory membership, not the people of the United Kingdom, but the markets. And we may say, well, that's not great for democracy. You know, people ought to be making these decisions. And when the market decides they're going to choose the the prime minister and the governing party, then we might want to say, oh, okay, well, we, we maybe want to put the brakes on that, have a bit more of a discussion rather than saying, you know, it's up to the to the bond market and to those who are trading the pound or something like that, right? So there, there's a debate to be had there. That said, it's also a lesson to politicians that, um, you know, if the market doesn't think you can get the job done, then you're probably in trouble from, from day one. Um, so so there you go. Uh, that said, everyone is facing structural challenges. Uh, the war in Ukraine, the, the COVID, obviously the, the pandemic and COVID, you know, resulting inflation, um, and of course, the United Kingdom Brexit, which speaks to the fact that there are also bigger, larger problems that have to be solved collectively and structurally that aren't going to be solved overnight. Those are those are long haul problems. We're not always the best at solving long haul problems. No, and I can't imagine Rishi Sunak has too many answers. I mean, we know what he ran on. It's sort of a continuation of what was already there. Um yeah, he's going to be he's going to have a tough job ahead of him. But in many ways, it's what it's what the caucus wanted. So I suppose he'll have caucus support at least until things start to go wrong. Really, there should be a general election at this point in, in Britain. That's exactly it. And I think that was the, there should have been one post Boris. There should uh, Boris Johnson. There certainly should have been one post uh, Liz Truss. And I, again, it's. You know, in a parliamentary system such as ours and, and, and that of the United Kingdom, you get to govern as long as you have the confidence of the House of Commons, provided you're not up against the constitutional requirement to hold a general election. And so the idea is, well, you can change ministries within a parliament, and as long as you have the confidence of the House, you can govern. The fact is that's checked by reality a little bit, which is to say that if, if you're going to do something radically different and the country's fed up with you, you may morally be obligated and probably politically, strategically want to hold a general election. That said, uh, I guess if you're looking at the polls right now as a British Tory, you're thinking, well, what could we possibly lose by waiting as if it can get any worse? Uh, Brian <laughs> Mulroney and Kim Campbell will tell you that, you know, perhaps it could get worse the longer you wait, right? Yeah. Those comparisons have been out there to 1993 in Canada. I mean, I think that might be a bit alarmist given how the uh, how it's structured in Britain, but you never know. I guess we can kind of boil it down to a few things so far, which is just I, almost mind-numbingly incredible 
failure by the Ottawa police to to seemingly figure out what it was coming their way and how to deal with it. Uh, but now we're hearing that Doug Ford doesn't want to doesn't want to appear, and I I can't help but wonder why that would be. Well, for no good reason, I would imagine. I mean, what they're going to say is basically, you know, well, parliamentary privilege, and we're focused on delivering for Ontarians, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the fact is, um, it would be remarkably embarrassing for them to show up and explain how they did nothing uh, while the city of Ottawa was occupied. And the whole thing through which I lived right down the road, incidentally, uh, not too far off, I lived in Lower Town at the time in the market. Mm -hmm. um, And we felt, and I was outside the the red zone. In fact, if you look at the the map of the class action suit, I was one street east of the, <laughs> the border. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I, I say that because I, you know my experience was comparatively quite light compared to those of my colleagues and friends and neighbors who just down the road got got it much much worse. Um, but you know we all felt abandoned, and that's because we were. And now that we see the various inquiries, there's not just one various. Um, you know, inquiries and committees who are digging into this, what we see is, well, nobody was prepared, nobody coordinated, and everybody dropped the ball. And effectively, the the convoy folks, either by choice or by uh, deliberately or by accident, weaponized federalism <laughs> against <laughs> against the city because no one seemed to be able to get their their affairs in order to actually deal with this. And uh, you know, that was a huge part of that failure came from the province. And, you know, in fact, lots of folks have said as much alongside, of course, the, the Ottawa police who were extraordinarily credulous and didn't seem to notice that folks booking hotel rooms for a month intended to stay. So uh, I, I suspect Ford simply doesn't want to be embarrassed and you know, politically, I don't blame him. I, morally, he ought to be there to to account for himself. Though, that said, you can also get an accounting of of his actions through the legislature in Ontario if the opposition parties would step up. But they're in a bit of a mess right now themselves. Yeah, leaderless, rudderless, and so forth. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, and hopeless. But, and hopeless, yeah. I mean, I guess in Doug Ford's case, there's no reason. I mean, there's no benefit for him to do this other than transparency. I mean, really, he should, if he just sat up there and owned some of this, maybe we could figure out how to not make it happen again. Because what struck me so much about it, having lived in Ottawa, in Lower Town too, actually, for quite a while, is that this is a, a, this is a world capital. This is a G7 capital. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow, unlike, I mean, and, you know, the capital on January the 6th is another example to some extent. But this idea that somehow we thought these were, were well-protected capitals including for the people who live there, by the way. And all of a sudden we realize, well, no, they're not. They're not at all. No, they're not. And it's fascinating that, you know, I I remember January 6th happened, the convoy in Ottawa happened, and then the convoy was headed, an iteration of it was headed to to D.C. in in the United States. And I remember watching it very, very carefully because I was was curious. And, you know, of course, that's my other hometown newspaper yeah. <laughs> um incidentally a city i've never been to but yeah, <laughs> I, I do pay cl- close attention to and they basically said nope <laughs> not <laughs> not gonna happen we learned from january 6th and we learned presumably from ottawa and it's not going to happen here and they made sure it didn't happen there and incidentally in credit where it's due uh, there were further attempts in ottawa to do it in in uh, in the winter last year and then again in in the summer, and those were shut down too. And so folks were very, very careful in the aftermath of that, both in DC and here in Ottawa, to make sure that that didn't happen again. So there were lessons learned from it, and that's good. But what we're lacking is accountability and consequences for those who let us down in the first place, right? It's good to have a 
planned going forward, it's good to know the nature of the problem now and it's good to deal with it and to make sure it doesn't happen again. But someone needs to bear the consequences for those failures because currently there's just been effectively uh, no accountability. Who's lost their, I mean, you know, the, the chief of police was ousted, although we're learning that there's a whole wasp's nest there. But Premier Ford secured a majority, a, a big one. Jim Watson has decided, the mayor of Ottawa has decided not to run again. You know, Justin Trudeau, who, by the way, credit to the feds, it wasn't largely their fault. and They were part of the solution, you know, is, is now bearing the brunt of probably an unreasonable amount of criticism. But I feel like we didn't ultimately get the, the accountability we deserved. Uh, David, I recommend a trip to Washington. It is quite a place. Uh, and thank you so much for your time once again. In, t- in the fall, I hear, because it gets... It's I mean, pretty it's muggy. Plus size turn, it gets swampy. Yeah, murky. <laughs> yeah, that's a better muggy. way. To, that's a better it's way. To, we're not allowed to say swampy anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Thank you very much. Right. It was Thanks, my pleasure. David.